Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. We are going to pick back up in the narrative where we left off last week and uh, nestled right in here. Luke, right after the conversion of Saul, Luke uh, kind of bounces the focus back to Peter, and uh, Peter will be instrumental for the next couple chapters, and then we won't really hear much about uh, Peter again. But Luke, before really get to the main event in chapter 10, uh, Luke relates a couple uh, incidents where Peter performs miracles that uh, don't necessarily seem to be immediately tied to anything around the text. But as we walk through this, I think we'll see uh, how exactly Luke is setting us up for the events of chapter 10. So I'll read our text this morning, and we'll pray together and walk through this together. Beginning in verse 32, we read, Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But when Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for graciously drawing us together this morning to worship you. Lord, we pray that as we turn our attention to your word now, Lord, that you would grant us understanding, Lord, that our hearts would awe at your power, Lord, that we would increasingly uh, see you God, as a a God who is uh, in no way limited, who displays His power as He pleases, and Lord finds great delight in blessing His people. Lord, we pray that as we uh, better understand these truths, Lord, our lives would be uh, informed by them in every way. And we ask that we would be further conformed to the image of Christ, Lord, uh, by the power of your Spirit and through the power of your Word. We ask 
All of this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so as I said, uh, we have two kind of little miracle incidents nestled in the text here. And Luke is essentially, I think, setting the table for chapter 10. But uh, he, he gives us certainly enough uh, detail to understand what's happening here. But in some ways, these texts are kind of short on detail. Uh, he, he doesn't answer some questions uh, we might like answered. But ultimately, I think that's not really his purpose. Right? He uh, swings the, the focus from Saul back to the Apostle Peter, and we find out that in this, with the conversion of Saul and in this new period of peace in the church, apparently the church in Jerusalem is doing well enough that Peter feels free to kind of have a, I guess, a preaching tour. Uh, he uh, leaves Jerusalem, and he's out visiting the churches and apparently finding groups of believers, and especially here at Lido, we don't really know if these are believers who had previously fled Jerusalem because of the persecution, or if these are people who were evangelized by Philip as he was passing through when we last saw him. But coming to Lida, about a, a day's journey, 25 miles or so from Jerusalem, he comes to a, a group of Christians gathered there, and amongst those people uh, is the man named Aeneas. And we don't, at this point, we don't know if there, there isn't enough detail in the text to know if Aeneas is a believer or not. Uh, he is only introduced as a certain man. Probably he's with the saints and probably uh, a Christian himself. But he's not introduced to us one way or the other, really. Uh, all we know about him is that he's been paralyzed for eight years. Whether he had a stroke or suffered an injury to his spine, we don't know. But he is unable to walk, and he's been unable to walk for long enough that he's uh, known as a paralyzed person. Everyone in the community apparently knows that he is a paralyzed person. And turning to him, uh, Peter gives a very... Uh, direct, I don't know what to call this, a command or a prayer, right? It's, it's certainly a prayer in some sense, at the same time, a uh, command to Aeneas, and probably that tells us something about uh, Peter's confidence in prayer, that uh, it's, it's really hard to know whether to call this a prayer or a command. But uh, in the name of Jesus Christ, uh, Peter commands Aeneas to get up, uh, he informs him that Jesus has healed him, and he tells him to make his bed. And immediately, Aeneas is healed. He stands up and presumably makes his bed. And in the wake of this, uh, Luke says that everyone in Lydda and Sharon, Sharon is the plain, like the region around Lydda, so uh, all of the residents of Lydda and Sharon uh, recognize Jesus' power when they see the paralyzed man walk and they themselves turn to the Lord. And so in this really brief uh, incident, uh, we see uh, ultimately the purpose of a miracle, I think, that this miraculous healing was given to draw other people to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that uh, the miracle isn't the end in and of itself. The miracle is 
the means to the end. It's used to draw other people to faith. And even then, kind of all of this is setting the table for the next miracle. While Peter is still in Lydda, presumably ministering to the saints there, next door in Joppa, uh, something else is happening. And uh, we've been in Joppa once before this year. You might remember that this is the city that Jonah got on the ship in, uh, right? Jonah was attempting to flee the Lord, and it's 12 miles, 11 or 12 miles farther beyond Lydda. So uh, we're talking about uh, Lydda being 25 miles from Jerusalem, uh, Joppa being 12 more miles. Joppa would be very much on the border between what people probably would have considered Judea and Samaria, right? We're, we're right on the edge here. And uh, though it's in Judea, Joppa is very much a Greek city at this point. There are lots of Jews living there, but everything about the city uh, seems Greek to the point that uh, though this disciple is introduced to us with uh, an Aramaic name, Tabitha, uh, he also gives her Greek name. She, she probably uses her Greek name day to day. And uh, this woman, following the Lord, is introduced to us as full of good works and acts of charity. And as the narrative goes on, we find out a little bit more about uh, her good works or her acts of charity, but apparently she was a woman of means and she devoted herself, her time, her money to caring for the poor, and she was uh, notoriously generous, like the community recognized her generosity, and she was apparently dearly loved, and she, uh, though... Uh, uh, and very uh, beloved member of the church becomes ill and died. And as she passes away, they wash her and prepare her uh, for burial, uh, lay her in the upper room. But at the same time, uh, news about what had happened in Lydda had made it to them that Peter was there. And, uh, you know, everything about uh, you know, what happens next is... Strange in the sense that they never explicitly say to Peter, we want you to raise her from the dead. At least Luke doesn't record that. Uh, even when he shows up in the room, they just kind of, there's a tension hanging there. Like, is Peter able to do this? You know, we, they, they don't ask. But uh, they uh, do send people to Peter, ask him to come, and Peter responds immediately. He gets up and goes with them. He gets to Joppa and uh, goes into the upper room. And there in the upper room, uh, widows, the widows that uh, Tabitha had been ministering to and apparently providing clothing for, helping them uh, provide for themselves, are standing around uh, Peter, uh, weeping about the loss of Tabitha, showing Peter how generous and wonderful Tabitha was. And everything about this scene kind of makes me, like, probably not vocally, but internally chuckle, right? Because I, I have this picture of Peter in my mind as, like, I don't know, a little bit obtuse sometimes, kind of rough around the edges, like, you know, he's Peter. If, if you've ever read a gospel, you know Peter is Peter, right? And he's standing here in a room surrounded by weeping women, like, and I can just imagine him being like, what am I going to do right now? I don't know what to say to these people. 
uh, right? But he uh, graciously asks everyone to step outside. He kneels down by the body, and he says, Tabitha, arise. And there's a, there's a couple things um, about this account that if you haven't read Luke recently, might not... Uh, might not immediately, uh, you might not immediately recall. But, uh, you know, in, uh, in Luke, when Jesus is in a very similar situation, uh, he says in, in Aramaic, uh, Talitha kum, like uh, Talitha arise, little girl arise. And uh, what, when Peter says uh, Aramaic name, we don't know if he said arise and Aramaic or not, but everything about what Peter's response in this situation, like almost down to one letter, uh, reflects exactly what Jesus did in a very similar situation, right? That uh, I think we can safely presume uh, Peter himself is very confident in the working of the Holy Spirit, uh, seems very confident that what God expects of him uh, in this situation is to model what he saw Jesus doing. And everything about this situation should call to mind for us that Peter's ministry is, in fact, reflecting a lot of the ministry of Jesus Christ in some ways. And, and in fact, it, it probably stretches much farther um, back than that, that in this specific account, what you're seeing uh, Peter do uh, I think reflects uh, what you see Elijah do uh, with the widow's son, what you see Elisha do with the Shuamite widow or the Shuamite woman's son, uh, uh, what we see Jesus do actually uh, similar. You know, with uh, if you include Jairus's daughter, Jesus does something similar twice. That what Luke is trying to help us uh, see is that Peter very much is cut in the same mold as the servants of God from old. You know, like Elijah, like Elisha, like Jesus, there is Peter. That uh, Peter is definitely a servant of God. And in that sense, I think part of the purpose of these, uh, Luke relating these two accounts to us, or I'd even say the meaning of this text really, is to help us understand that what happens with Cornelius in chapter 10 isn't Peter going rogue, it's not Peter doing something that God doesn't intend, but Peter, in fact, is very clearly a servant of the Lord, and Peter's ultimate decision to include the Gentiles in the church is very much from God. And in a sense, I think God is absolutely confirming this, right? Not only is Peter modeling uh, you know, what we see with Elijah, what we saw with Elisha, what we saw with Jesus. But God's response in this situation is exactly the same as it was with Elijah, Elisha, and Jesus. Immediately, she opens her eyes, and she sees Peter, and she sits up. That God, in his power, is confirming through this miracle that his hand is on his servant, Peter. And so Peter uh, helps her up, and then calls in the church and presents her alive. And even in his uh, presenting her, right, think about Jesus and 
Jairus' daughter. That in this account, we're seeing Peter as uh, the servant of God and uh, clearly an apostle of the Lord. And uh, much like uh, with the previous miracle and Lydda, uh, the nature of this miracle quickly becomes known throughout all of Joppa, and God uses this miracle to draw yet more people to belief in Christ. And I think, I think there are probably, uh, there's probably a sense in which uh, should say that uh, this this text is setting the table for what happens in chapter 10. The point of this text is going to prepare the reader for what's happening in chapter 10. In fact, uh, as the text ends, right, with, and he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner, uh, Luke is definitely setting the table for what's going to happen next, right? This is kind of one of those details and acts that you could read and think, okay, I don't, I didn't really know his address. I wasn't going to mail anything to him. But uh, Luke includes this intentionally, I think, because Simon is a guy who, uh, being a tanner, kind of lives on the edge. Uh, And some people, what is a tanner, right? He's a person who tans hides. He deals in the hides of dead animals. He, He tans them out and sells them. And being a guy who handles dead things uh, all the time, most Jews, especially very pious Jews, would consider Simon to be ceremonially unclean, and it would be highly inappropriate for Peter to stay with Simon the Tanner if Peter was somehow some anointed servant of the Lord, right? Peter wouldn't want to have anything to do with Simon the Tanner. And I think Luke includes this text, though uh, he's still safely kind of in what is technically Judea, that Peter even now is kind of pushing the boundary for what Jews would consider people who can really be included in the work that God is doing. Uh, And uh, even as, you know, point that out and appreciate that that probably is the meaning of the text. Uh, I think there's something else that we should note in this text while we're here, and and I think it's uh, something anybody should note about this text, but probably something we especially should note, uh, right? Uh, and that is uh, the nature of the prayers in the text, right? Where uh, there are prayers uttered with, like, extreme confidence. I don't think presumption, but extreme confidence. And I would say Generally, uh, my impression is that we are, are people. Uh, we are people who have an extremely high appreciation for the sovereignty of the Lord, which I think is absolutely a good thing. And I think uh, a lot of times that's kind of reflected in our prayers, right? Like that, a lot of our prayers are sort of uh, couched in language like, "Well, if it's your will, Lord," uh, and. Certainly, that kind of prayer is modeled for us in Scripture. But uh, I think those kinds of words could be uttered with the, the sort of uh, 
attitude that Jesus is encouraging us towards, right? Where uh, on the one hand, we are incredibly reverent uh, and appreciate the fact that we're praying to the sovereign Lord of the universe. Uh, and at the same time, those prayers uh, can kind of be uttered uh, with a heart that almost betrays a, a lack of belief that God has any inclination to answer the prayers of his people, right? Like, uh, you know, if it's your will, I don't want to inconvenience you, but this could happen. And uh, certainly I would say that while Jesus is absolutely exhorting us towards uh, reverence, that uh, what, what we're seeing in this text is like a combination of awe that we are praying to a sovereign God, yet uh, an absolute confidence that God answers the prayers of his people. And I think uh, on this text, I think that is the sort of prayer that I would encourage us towards, a prayer that uh, absolutely is couched in the belief that God is inclined to demonstrate his power through answering prayers, even as he's affirming the gospel by answering the prayers of his people. And of course, that assumes that we are people who are praying according to the known desires of the Lord. Right? We're not praying for things that uh, uh, delight us, but we're praying after things that we know delight the Lord. That certainly in this text, Peter had every expectation that if the Lord answered this prayer, if if the Lord healed Aeneas, if the Lord raised Tabitha, that that would make his name more broadly known in the region. And knowing that God wants the gospel to advance, Peter absolutely and confidently, uh, boldly uh, stepped out in faith. And uh, to that end, I think uh, my encouragement to you this morning is that uh, while, while we should be always people that appreciate, uh, humbly appreciate the fact that our perception of a situation might not be God's perception of the situation and our will might not be God's will, that uh, absolutely our prayers should reflect uh, some of the realities you see uh, played out in this passage. Number one, uh, prayer uttered in the name of Christ. Prayer confident that because of the righteousness of Christ and because people of faith are soaked in the blood of Christ and seen by God as righteous, that God's inclination is always to answer the prayers of his children. That prayer You would hear other people uh, talk about this passage uh, and, and talk about prayer uh, or talk about the power of prayer, almost like prayer is a sort of talisman that has some kind of power in and of itself, like that prayer is almost a way to manipulate God's will or something along those lines. And I would say clearly that uh, Prayer is only powerful because God is powerful. Prayer has no power in and of itself. Prayer is simply petition to the one who is 
powerful. And we know that God's inclination on hearing the prayers of his people is to answer those prayers because he sees his people through Christ. He sees his people in the righteousness of Christ. And as people uh, covered by the blood of Christ, uh, our prayers ought to be uh, often the sorts of prayers that uh, echo that reality, that echo the will of God, that we recognize that our delight, our pleasure, and our comfort are ultimately the end, that God's will is the end, and that our prayers should align with the will of God. We should be people who pray the will of God after Him. That, for instance, uh, we know that God's desire is always for the advance of the gospel. And, and so, uh, praying to that end, you know, praying for uh, Craig and Abby to that end, praying for uh, Anthony, even as he's in the hospital, to have opportunities to talk to other people about the gospel, and certainly for his health, but for the advance of the gospel is the sort of prayer that we should be uttering always, that we know that God is uh, inclined to answer our prayers. We know that God is inclined to act according to his will, and we should find the ground where we can pray earnestly uh, both for the thing that we long for and pray knowing that it accords with the will of God. And I, I have the conversation probably more often than I wish where a person would tell me something like, I don't know uh, that I really see answers to my prayer often. Like, I don't, I don't know that I see my prayers answered much. Uh, and, you know, usually the explanation that a person would offer is something like, well, you know, maybe it is answered and I just didn't see it, but it, it sure seemed like a no from God. And gently, uh, lovingly, uh, uh, the first question I'll typically ask is, well, what kinds of prayers are we talking about? And like, what are you praying for? Are you... Uh, praying for something that would delight you, that would comfort you, that would put you at ease? Or are you praying for the kinds of things that you know God himself desires? That uh, the sort of prayer that chases after the things that we know that God himself desires is, is always answered in my experience. Not always in the way we might imagine, but always answered. And then finally, and... Uh, maybe most clearly in this text, I think that those kinds of prayers are uttered like boldly, like with expectancy that God would answer. I mean, like Peter prays so boldly that he's going to kind of look like a fool if God doesn't answer, at least in the first instance. I guess in the second instance, he was alone in the room. But, I mean, he prays so boldly that like there is... Zero expectation that God is not going to answer this prayer. He issues the command to Tabitha that Tabitha arise. Right? And that that should also uh, 
characterize the way we pray. That when we're praying in accordance with the will of God and we are cloaked in the righteousness of Christ, absolutely our prayers should not be apologetic or hesitating. Our prayers should be bold and expectant, knowing that God's inclination is always to answer the prayers of His people. I... I don't want to make you feel super uncomfortable, but uh, here it goes. (laughs) Uh, One of the things that I've been uh, incredibly encouraged in in the past week, and then like as I was kind of working through this, I I was thinking about the two things individually, and then uh, on Friday they kind of came together in my mind, is uh, the, the kind of prayer that I'm exhorting you towards uh, is absolutely uh, the kinds of prayers that I've been hearing from the Roths this week. And I, I want to illustrate, uh, I guess, what it is that I'm talking about exactly. Right? That uh, obviously their heart and ours is uh, for Anthony's immediate healing. And uh, at the same time, uh, I, what has characterized the prayers that I have heard uh, has been uh, absolutely an expectancy that God is able to do miraculous things, uh, mixed with like a reverence and an awe, knowing that they are speaking to the sovereign Lord of the universe. That a, a God who, uh, who no one can demand anything from. Uh, like a, an urgency, an expectancy that God will work, a confidence that God has the power to work, uh, and a boldness to pray clearly for the miraculous. And, uh, you know, whether it is for the health of a person, whether it is for the progress of the gospel in Kenya, or whether it is uh, increasingly that the gospel would be the subject of conversation at Bennett Elementary. Whatever we're talking about, that absolutely uh, what should characterize our prayer is that, and, and expectancy that God can do and does do miraculous things to display His power and advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we are humbled that you would work in us, God, uh, mystified that despite our past sins and our previous struggles, that you would look on us with love as your own children, yet God, uh, it only prompts us uh, to worship, God, that by the wisdom of the counsel of your will, God, you have clothed us in the righteousness of Christ, you have uh, folded us into your family as sons and daughters, And Lord, uh, you look at us as 
a loving father looks at any son or daughter. And so, God, as we come to better understand this reality, as we come to grow in our confidence of the identity you've given us through Jesus Christ, God, we pray that uh, we would be privileged to see your power at work. God, we pray that uh, you would continue to do exactly what you've said you will do, God, that we are privileged to see the gospel advance. And uh, in Kenya, through the work of Craig and Abbey, uh, in Guinea, uh, through the Hamptons, and uh, Spain, through the Ashcrafts, and as Megan works with the Evan, as others work with uh, the refugee community here in Lincoln, God, as uh, Jonathan continues to step into schools and proclaim the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ and equip coaches to do the same. God, we ask that we would continue to see the powerful working of your Spirit and the building of your church. God, but we pray that you would also do that here among us. God, that we would continue to see the advance of the gospel in our own communities, that we would see you draw others to yourself in Jesus Christ, God, that we would see uh, your powerful hand work in uh, restoring Anthony to health. Lord, we pray that you would allow us, God, to see your power displayed and you would use that display to draw others to the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, that he would be preeminent in all things. God, that your church would continue to be built and that we would be privileged to see the end come. Lord, we pray all of this. God, knowing that we deserve uh, no answer to our prayers and our own merit, but God, in the blood of Christ, we ask these things. God, we pray these things knowing that you desire the same. And God, we, we ask, God, that uh, in, in the days and weeks to come, God, we would be uh, privileged to see uh, the work of your Spirit in and around us and for your glory. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.